0: Perhaps more than at any time in my life, we live in a divided country. We can all speculate on what caused it or who's at fault, but the fact remains we're more divided than ever. I was thinking as I prepared back in my childhood when we would stand in public elementary school and Pledge of Allegiance and there were common truths about America and we were told that we were all aspiring to be equal, and that sounds quaint and naive. I think we had a little bit of a burst of unity after 9-11. Our country came together against a common enemy. We wanted the same thing. We wanted to find out who did this and stop them from ever doing it again. But that seems like a lifetime ago. Now we are divided in every way imaginable, and in some ways that even a few years ago we couldn't have imagined. They're red states and blue states. Certainly politically, Republicans or Democrats. And we've reached the point where the other side isn't just wrong. They have a wrong outlook. Their policies aren't good. They're viewed as evil. To be hated and destroyed. We're divided more by ethnicity than ever. White or black or Hispanic or Asian American or Native American, and on and on it goes. We're divided by religion. Evangelical Christians used to have a unity around the Word of God that has fractured. Liberal denominations have split forever and they're still splitting. There's Catholics and Muslims and Jews and cults of every stripe and variety. We're divided in America more so and surprisingly so by sexuality and gender things that a few years ago we weren't even thinking about and now everybody fits into a category heterosexual or homosexual or transgender or lgbtqia and check back next year there'll be more letters added to that And as these groups overlap, we divide even further because now I'm not just a member of this group, but I identify with three or four different categories and then there's subgroups within subgroups within subgroups. And there's a sense in which it is what it is. I'm not talking about America this morning. I'm talking from the Word of God. But it illustrates an issue that we face as the American church. America's gone down a dark road of division, and apart from God supernaturally intervening and the gospel of Jesus Christ being applied to individual hearts and lives in a mass revival, we're not coming back. But again, I'm not talking about America per se, but as Americans within the church, within the body of Christ, we live in this culture, and the divisions out there are dangerous. They're not neutral. The divisions increasingly, every year, are fostering more and more anger and hatred. Each group and subgroup seems to be jockeying for position. Groups perceiving that that group has the upper hand and we want our piece of the pie. And so groups fighting within each other. Every group thinks its ideas are superior. And if their ideas don't hold sway, well, then they're going to fight and claw to make sure nobody else's ideas get ahead. That's what this election season is going to be about. Every election season becomes this way. And with the economy and inflation running rampant and gas prices through the roof and shortages of things like baby formula, Americans are even more angry than normal, which is saying something. We seem to be increasingly an angry, divided, unhappy country. And when a new issue comes along, like for example, a couple of years ago with COVID that still is around, I don't believe it creates divisions. I believe it exposes divisions and the anger that are already resident within our citizen. Now again, as a citizen, it's sad, it's frustrating. I admit, I get sinfully angry about the state of events. And that really is getting a little closer to where we're going this morning. Because as a Christian and as a pastor, I look at the anger and division out there, and I realize that if we're not careful, it takes root in our hearts. And then when we come together as the body of Christ, that anger and division and bitterness that we picked up out there begins to foster and grow in here. The things that are happening in society are never just out there because they're always encroaching on the body of Christ. And the divisions and anger that are splitting apart our country can split apart a church. We see it with every crisis we saw it with covid we see it with politics we see it with racial issues and yet we're supposed to be different the world looks at churches and christians and sees the anger and divisions there and says well they're just like us and that shouldn't be jesus prayed in the latter part of john 17 verse 11 this holy father keep them in your name the name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are and Jesus expected that our relationships with one another would be a testimony for Him. John 13, 34, and 35. Very familiar verses. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The world should never look at the body of Christ and see divisions and anger. They should see that unity, that love. The aspiration, the goal is set forth well in Romans 15, 5 and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the heart of our study this morning. Not those verses, but that idea. That as the world around us. Is pulled apart by anger and division. We're supposed to be different. In Christ. That should never be. Kindness and love and unity. Amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. Is supposed to be our testimony of the world. Not the same anger. And bitterness and divisions. That they see amongst themselves. As we ponder this, we're going to be studying this morning in the book of Colossians. It's in the bulletin, Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 and 11 is the actual text of our study. I read those verses as part of our scripture reading this morning, but I believe the apostle Paul gives us strong words that will help us swim against the tide of our culture, that will help us avoid being consumed by the anger and division that's all around us. And he does it by reminding us of who we are in Christ as opposed of who we used to be in the flesh. Now Paul wrote this letter to a group of believers who were doing well. Paul was in prison. We don't believe he'd even ever visited this church But he had heard that they had a positive testimony. Colossians 1, 3 and 4. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. So there's a sense in which they were expressing and experiencing and living the very things that we've heard other scriptures say should be our testimony. And yet as we come to our text this morning, we'll see Paul warning them about some things that are very far from love for one another. Paul understood that the church was under assault. There were some who were trying to lead people astray, just as there are in our day. Colossians 2, four, Paul says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. In other words, there were some slick talkers who were trying to lead people astray. Colossians two eight, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So the Apostle Paul knew people were being inundated and some of them, even though they had been doing well, would be tempted to fall into error. And so he understood the antidote was Jesus. The entire book is about Jesus. There's some powerful theological truths about who Jesus is and what he did for sinners like us. And because of those powerful truths, it's supposed to translate into different lives, living differently. I think the ultimate goal of the book is expressed well in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. It's about knowing Jesus, but it's also about following Jesus, living His example. And Paul understood that that begins with our minds and our hearts. Again, it was part of our scripture reading, but he began what we know as chapter 3 saying, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Doesn't mean you don't live here, but it means you don't focus here. That this doesn't consume you. And the last time I preached, I talked about verses 5 to 7, where he's making it clear sexual immorality has to be killed, be done away with. It has no part in the life of a believer. But as we get into verses 8 to 11, he starts dealing with some additional practical truth that goes beyond our individual lives and impacts how we live with one another. And I believe it's the beginning of the antidote. For making sure that the anger and division that's permeating America doesn't grab a foothold at Lakeside. Paul has said in many places in Scripture that we're new creatures in Christ. For example, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And that's what Paul's talking about today. How do we live as those new creatures in Christ with one another. Again, I believe that Paul's words will help us fight against society's encroachment, but it will allow us to do a check on our own hearts today. From an outline standpoint, I've just defined this in a very simple way of three points, three marks of a new life in Christ. And really next week, I'm going to be continuing these themes with more elaboration because Paul continues... But this morning in the verses we're going to cover, we're going to see three marks of a new life in Christ. And the first mark is this, exercising self-control over the heart. Exercising self-control over the heart. Verse 8, the Apostle Paul has a clear instruction, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Again, that sounds like any news report in America of any particular event. But this is practical and hard instruction because Paul's not talking to those people out there. He's talking to believers and how we interact with each other. This impacts what we say, but we also will see it impacts how we think. What's going on in our heart. So Paul says, but now you also, and he's transitioning, he's making it clear this is a new thought, but it's just as important as killing sexual immorality. He's emphasizing it. He's saying this is very important. And he says, put them all aside. And it's a familiar type of imagery in Scripture. He has in view here the things that he's going to talk about. Put them all aside. has to do with getting rid of filthy garments, filthy clothes, Something we can easily understand in Florida. You go out and you work in your yard and it's hot and sweaty and you're miserable. And not many of us would come inside and say, well, I'm dressed for the evening. I'll have dinner in these clothes. I'll sit down and sit on my furniture. No, we immediately, you've got to get this off. This is filthy. It's disgusting. It feels horrible. And Paul is saying, like we would do with those clothes, we would do this with these attitudes But on a much more permanent basis. We're not putting these clothes in the dirty laundry. We're throwing them away. Never to pick them up again. So what are these things? And again remember he's not condemning the world. He's talking to believers. Those who in their own lives have shown love for other believers. He's saying you need to put these things aside. And he starts with anger. We understand this very easily because... We all struggle with anger. It's a hatred that wells up in us when things don't go our way. As one commentator said, it's a deep, smoldering, resentful bitterness. It's tied into our pride. We want things our way, and when they don't go our way, we're not happy about it. Maybe our ideas were ignored. Maybe we were offended by what someone said about us. Maybe someone deliberately hurt us and we want revenge it's that welling up in our hearts and it's closely related to the second thing he mentions of wrath anger breeds wrath because wrath is the explosive expression of anger anger begins to simmer and then wrath gives it vent If anger was hidden in the heart, wrath is where it erupts. In Luke 4.28, there was a reaction to Jesus' teaching. And it says, And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. That's the same word for wrath. As they heard these things. Results in, for many, yelling or violence or actions. And there's more than one commentator pointed out this is really just another way of talking about some of the deeds of the flesh. That's why we should be putting them all aside because they're fleshly. Galatians five nineteen and 20 says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, Factions. It's unpleasant when all that happens in society. It's a tragedy and abomination when it happens within the church. The Word of God is clear anger and wrath are not to characterize the life of a Christian. Now, I understand there is such a thing as righteous anger because God has a holy anger against sin. Jesus expressed righteous anger at times, but be careful. Rarely is that what's causing us to be angry. In fact, I can say without fear of contradiction, because it's biblical, that if you live with an ever turning anger of your heart, you're not living in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. James said this in chapter 1, verses 19 and twenty. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So Paul understands that if we're not careful, anger can take root, and it begins to give expression and advance. In fact, he's building a progression here. Anger breeds wrath, and then he says... As part of put them all aside. Malice. Malice is the ill will we have towards others. The evil intention. We want something bad to happen to them. We want to do something bad to them. They caused us pain. They deserve to feel pain. They said something bad about us. Well then certainly we need to say three bad things about them. It's this ungodly, worldly, fleshly instinct that says, I want my fellow Christian to suffer. And now as the heart is building, it leads to the next thing to put away, which is slander. The word that's translated slander is also the word that we would get blasphemy from. And the idea here is he's not talking about lies and falsehoods directed at God, but he's talking about believers because they are angry and wrath is welled up and because they harbor malice in their hearts towards another believer that they're going to talk bad about them. They're going to spread rumors about them. They're going to gossip about them. They don't want anybody to think well of this person, so they'll do their best to bring them down. It's not a matter of overlooking an offense or going to a brother in private as we're commanded to do in Matthew 18. No, I want everybody to know that they are a sinner. As though we didn't know that already about each one of us. Malice breeds slander. It can happen that you slander your spouse or your friends or the church leadership or your parents, or your children. And again, this is just building. This is an overflow of the heart. Paul continues anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abuse of speech from your mouth. It personalizes it, makes it clear we're accountable for this. This is coming from us. Abuse of speech. John MacArthur said it's just foul-mouthed abuse. It's speaking badly about other people with vile words, harsh words, angry words. Paul is adding us all together. He's saying, stop it. Don't do this. Don't be this way. Again, he's not talking to the general populace out there. He's talking to us in here. We can't treat one another this way. As I think back on my Christian life, going back to when I was saved, and perhaps this is unique to me, can't tell you the number of times I got annoyed and angry on a Sunday morning getting ready for church. I think it happens with every family with kids. We ought to be looking forward to things, but our hearts so quickly trip us up. You may be sitting here this morning with a grudge against somebody because they did something to you. In fact, you may still be angry about something that just occurred, or you may have already spent time this morning talking badly about someone else in the body of Christ because people need to know how bad they are. Paul's telling us to take a deep breath and stop it. Don't do this. Such behavior has no place at all in the Christian life, period. James said this about a very similar thing in James chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. That's what Paul's telling us. Get rid of these hard attitudes. Get rid of these fleshly reactions. Just like you would get rid of as quickly as possible sweaty, smelly clothes. Get rid of these vestiges of your old self immediately. Immediately. If you struggle, start memorizing Scripture. Start replacing those thoughts with truth. Ephesians 4.29 is a great expression of what we should be. Through verse 31. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. No unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Only such a word as is good for edification to give grace to those who hear. If we could apply that on a nationwide level, the country would go silent tomorrow. Let me encourage you, if this rears its head in your life, take it seriously. Don't be a gossip. Don't be a slanderer. Don't be the one who runs everyone else down. Because if you find yourself angry with everyone else and constantly criticizing everyone else, the issue may not be them, it may be you. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4 Said this at verses 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. On this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. We've got to exercise self-control. Because by the time the words hit our lips, it's a reflection of the damage already done in the heart. Jesus said this in Luke 6:45 The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So let me encourage you. Do a heart check this morning. You are a new creature. You have a new life. Don't live the old fleshly life a moment further. So the first mark of a new life in Christ is exercising self-control over the heart. The second is this, practicing truthfulness with one another. Practicing truthfulness with one another. Paul's still talking about words we say, but it's interesting that he delineated this and made it a separate statement Likely for emphasis. And he says something very simple in terms of what not to do, but he gives a theological basis for it. A theological basis that I think applies to what we just saw about anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Verses 9 and 10, he says this. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. What we're not to do is very simple. Do not lie to one another. Again, it seems odd that we would have to say this and that Paul would have to say this to the church. But the reason is, is because as Christians, if we're not careful, we still lie. Paul's making it clear. It's an imperative. We must be truthful. We don't deceive each other. We don't misrepresent the truth. We don't tell lies. This should not be as difficult as it is, but we are masters at rationalizing why a lie isn't really a lie in the first place. I think that starts when we're about two and then as we get older, we get better. Well, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Or I, 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 I don't need to look that bad. Well, I, they'll think the wrong thing of me. God has always commended honesty. For example, in Proverbs twelve nineteen, truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. I think we lose sight of how seriously God views dishonesty. Paul says, do not lie to one another because he understands that God hates in a righteous way that behavior. Proverbs 12, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are His delight. Again, Paul told us in Colossians 3, 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, we should reflect Christ but when we're lying, really we're in the position of Peter where Jesus could say to us, get behind me, Satan. Because if we're lying to one another, we're not walking in the ways of Jesus. We're walking in the ways of the devil. Jesus in John eight forty four is condemning the religious leaders but he also says theological true things about Satan. In John eight forty four, 44, he says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Paul is making it clear dishonesty with one another in the body of Christ or in any other arena is an abomination it's never okay we must speak the truth to one another speak the truth in love of course but we can't be dishonest people now Paul gives a theological explanation for this which really captures the heart of his teaching. He says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. What he's saying is if you're lying to one another, you're still practicing evil. As I said, I think this could apply back to anger And wrath and malice and slander and abuse of speech from your mouth. These are all characteristics of that old self before Christ. Those evil practices that were part and parcel of our existence. And he's saying, look, you're done with that. You've laid those aside. You came to Jesus Christ. That's the old way. You've put it aside. You've laid it aside. And he said, now you've put on this new self. Romans 6.6 6 expresses this idea of laying aside. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. We've laid aside those evil practices. Now we are in Christ. We're supposed to put on the new self. Again, we're new creatures in Christ. We have a new nature. We have new desires. We have an ability to obey and follow the will of God that we didn't have before. It's not just that we put off those fleshly remnants, which is very important, but that we put on godliness. Again, this is not new teaching. It's not isolated teaching. The New Testament teaches this in many places. Paul teaches it. For example, in Ephesians 4, verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That really describes most biblical counseling. If you've ever taken any courses or studied, they're always telling you that you're trying to help people to put off the sinful flesh, and put on righteousness. And he understands that this is a growing process. That new self that we've put on is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In other words, we're growing, we're learning The beginning of Romans 12 too, very familiar words, but Paul's talking about the same principle. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As our society gets angrier and angrier and more divided, that's what we have to fight against. We're not to be conformed to that. That's not supposed to creep into the church and foster anger and division here. We're supposed to think differently. We're supposed to grow in our knowledge of the Word of God. It's interesting because at the very beginning of the letter, I believe Paul prayed for this very thing that he's talking about here, this renewing and becoming more like Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 9, Paul's praying and he says this at verse 9 and 10. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's really what is being talked about in our text this morning. That's the renewal that's occurring To put away those old filthy garments forever of the flesh, of anger and wrath and malice and slander and abuse of speech and lying, to put those things away, we have to fill our hearts and minds with Scripture. We have to begin to think and act biblically. Whereas unbelievers' default setting is all of those sinful practices, what he calls evil practices, our default setting should be like Christ. But that can only come as we absorb and study and meditate on the word of God. You want to be truthful? You want to eliminate lying? Then study the word. Which is truth. John seventeen seventeen. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we live in a world that rewards lying. Rewards anger. Rewards all these evil things. But we can't be that way. Paul is telling us that we need to live out the reality of our salvation. We are new creatures in Christ. We need to act like new creatures in Christ, which means replacing fleshly thinking with the truth of God's Word, which will conform us to the image of our Creator. Paul's really telling us In different words, what he told the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That brings us to our third mark of a new life in Christ. Exercising self-control over the heart. Practicing truthfulness with one another. And third and finally, avoiding divisions in the body of Christ. Avoiding divisions in the body of Christ. Now, as Paul continues in verse 11, he's not really telling us to do something, he's explaining something that's already occurred. He's explaining that renewing that he was talking about. He says this in verse 11. A renewal, again, he's talking about renewed in the true knowledge. He says, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Again, he's not stating isolated truth. These are truths taught elsewhere, but it really is significant for us in a society that's increasingly causing divisions for us to think rightly about the body of Christ. Paul says there's, this is a renewal in which there is no distinction. And then he goes on to identify several categories, some religious and cultural, some class-related He's saying all the distinctions in line that society draws in all these different areas are obliviated because of Christ. They no longer matter. And he sets forth several examples from his day to make this point. And while the examples might be slightly different today, the truth remains. He says a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. Now it's again fairly clear from the New Testament there was a lot of animosity by the Jews against everyone else and others had that same animosity back to the Jews and when it says Greek here it really just means Gentiles non-Jewish people synonymous with the uncircumcised not necessarily talking about those from the country of Greece but Greek was the common language of the time so it's talking in general about those who aren't Jewish And you see this over and over in the New Testament, but part of it was because of the deep-seated distrust and hatred of those groups towards one another. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts, in the early church, the Jews who came to Christ had no idea Gentiles would ever be allowed to be saved. In Acts chapter 10, there's the account where Peter was told by God to go to a Gentile household, to the house of a man named Cornelius. And he went... But in Acts 10, 28, Peter says something that indicates what was going on. He says, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. In other words, even in Peter's time, it took a supernatural vision from God to allow him to go to a Greek, to a Gentile. And he preached the gospel and they came to faith. And when he went back to Jerusalem and gave a missionary report, you would think people would be overjoyed. But what's the first thing they said? Acts chapter 11, verse 2. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, eventually, Peter explained it. And then we see in Acts eleven eighteen when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. My point is simply to show how deep-seated the enmity was between these groups. And yet, the Apostle Paul is saying, because of a renewal that's occurring in Christ, those distinctions are gone. And he continues, circumcised and uncircumcised. Then he says barbarians and Scythian, And this really has to do with societal values and culture. The barbarians were a reference to those who were uneducated. The cultural outcasts. They didn't speak necessarily the language of the people. They didn't speak Greek. I'm guessing that culturally we'd say something along the lines of our high school dropout. Somebody who's not really by society standards amounting to anything. Anything. And then he says Scythian and that's actually a subgroup of barbarians and that's the lowest of the low of the barbarians because the Scythians, historians tell us, were a vicious and violent people that murdered and plundered and pillaged. Some say that there was even rumors that they didn't bathe. You can imagine those are the people that you would cross the street to get away from. If they come in the room, you're going to the other side. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is in Christ, when those people from those wicked backgrounds come to Christ, the distinctions are gone. They don't exist. They don't matter. He continues on, slave and freeman. Against slavery was a dominant part of the culture. Some estimates were that there were more slaves in the city of Rome than, than citizens. And slaves didn't have rights in terms of society. They were property. They were objects. Freeman had the freedom to do whatever. And the Apostle Paul saying is when a slave comes to faith and a Freeman comes to faith, it doesn't matter anymore. Those boundaries are done away with. Why? Because of these words at the end. But Christ is all and in all. Every believer is indwelt by Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And what Paul is saying is that while they were still Jews and some were still Greeks and some were still from the class of people called barbarians and some came from the people called Scythians and some were slaves and some were free, he's saying, and in Christ, all those distinctions are done away with. When you gather within the walls of the church, Christ is in all. All. All those distinctions that society can create matter, not a bit. We are one. Scripture teaches this truth over and over and over again, first Corinthians 12 thirteen For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit i won 't read all of it, but Ephesians chapter two verses eleven to nineteen. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, secluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So society has its groups and subgroups and divisions, but when you come into the body of Christ, those are all done away with. We are one people in Christ. We don't recognize those distinctions, we don't recognize those divisions. Now, there's a twofold application of this, I think, that's very critical. One is very simple. We can't be those who look down on others because of their background, or because of their skin color, or because of where they're from, or what they do. Prejudice and discrimination should never be present in the body of Christ. It is wrong, and it's evil, and it's an offense against God. But there's another movement with the evangelicalism that is a great danger. Because it's trying to build up the very walls that Christ died to tear down. The motivation of some of these individuals is deceptively appealing, but the outcome contradicts scripture. It has to do with ethnic or racial distinctions. We're all of one race, Adam's race, but we use that term to refer to skin color and different things. Here's the deceptively appealing basis for what's occurring. America has treated some of its people horrifically throughout its history. You can't read an account of slavery in America without your heart breaking for the inhumane way that people were treated primarily black people. A war was fought in part dealing with those issues, but when slavery ended, black people were still subjected to horrific abuse. They were viewed as subhuman, they were viewed as unclean, they were mistreated, they were lynched, they were murdered, they were ostracized. They couldn't go to school with white children. They couldn't marry white people. It was horrific. I wish that was in a lifetime ago, but I saw that type of heart attitude in my lifetime. That type of behavior is an abomination because we should never treat people created in the image of God that way. And sadly, many pastors and churches not only practiced that behavior, but they tried to justify it from Scripture. And if you follow the course of American history, there were many other groups that were not treated well. we can thank the Lord that our country has come a long way and those practices are no longer sanctioned by the law. There will always be prejudice and discrimination because people are still sinners at heart. But as a society, we've moved past some of those things. Here's the problem. And here's the danger. Some Christians see this history and they're ashamed of it. And I can understand that. It's not a proud moment. But in their zeal to do something about it. They decide that we need to start viewing people by that category again. So, we need to view black Christians differently, and we need to view Hispanic Christians differently, and we need to divide people up so that we can deal with them separately. Whatever the good intentions, that is an offense against God. Our identity is not in our skin color. Or our DNA, our identity is in Jesus Christ. Who died to redeem us and make us one. And broke down those barriers that we dare not erect. There's a beautiful picture in Revelation chapter 5. Of what Christ did. Verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth. United as one in Christ. The old self finds identity and skin color and ethnic origins But we're new creatures whose identity is in Jesus Christ because he is all and he's in all. Again, we need to examine our hearts. If you look down upon other people, if you find yourselves talking about those people, you need to repent. They're human beings made in the image of God. They're sinners just like you and me and it has nothing to do with their skin color or their background. But likewise, we can't recreate divisions in the body of Christ that Jesus through his blood has torn down and done away with. He died for men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to make us one, not to divide us. I pray that our testimony will be different. I pray that when the world looks at us here at Lakeside, it sees a reality, not of division and anger and dishonesty, but of love and truth and unity, that we would live out what the Apostle John says in 1 John three twenty three. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we need You. Lord, the anger and division that goes on in society entices us. Lord, there's a sense in which it appeals to our old self, If we're not careful, Lord, we find ourselves jumping in and taking sides with the anger and the division that's happening all around us. Lord, I pray today that you would examine our hearts, that you would show us the reality of where we need to repent and be transformed. Lord, help us as your children to put aside the old self permanently and to embrace our new life in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would protect each one of us here at Lakeside. Help us not be characterized by anger and wrath and malice and slander and abuse of speech and dishonesty, or by divisions between our skin colors and our classes and our educational background. Lord, help us put them all aside and be imitators of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Lord, some hearing this prayer may not know you. They're still in their sins. They're still living in their old self. I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes. That they would reflect even upon the theology that we were singing earlier. That Jesus Christ died for sinners and that his death was complete atonement, complete payment for the sins of all those who would ever believe. And I pray that they would trust him and turn from their sin. Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that you would unify us. Give us a love for one another. So that all men will know that we are your disciples. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.